I'm Katie Atwell, co-host of the Edugals podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another great episode of My EdTech Life. I am your host, Fonz Mendoza, and I am excited for you to join us on this wonderful Tuesday evening. And it seems so odd. I mean, I know it's Tuesday. Usually the shows are Thursday or Saturdays, but sometimes, you know, everything lines up and we have a great week of shows. And it all starts today. And I'm just so excited with our wonderful guest who is here today, who is definitely going to be sharing their passion of education and more than anything, sharing an amazing origin story and just really what he has been doing and the work that he's been doing. And it's going to be great because we started warming up in the pre-chat and we definitely left off on a great, great note. So I'm just really excited to continue this conversation with you that are joining us live. So please, if you're joining us in the chat, drop drop in where it is that you're joining us from, because we're definitely excited to take any questions or any comments. But today we have an amazing guest. And if you're already seeing him on your screen, very familiar face, you're already reading the name. We have Mr. John Carippo on the show, and I am just excited for his shares today. John, how are you doing this evening? Oh, I'm, uh, okay. So let me restart that. Um, so I was not in the classroom this year. So for anybody that like, doesn't know me, I did about 20 years in the classroom. And then I did about five years working at Q, which was a large educational, uh, nonprofit on the West coast. But last year during COVID, I went back to the classroom and it was amazing to to be 58 years old and be a first year teacher again, because I've been in the classroom for a few years. And the reason I did that was what I do is a lot of uh, pedagogy, educational thinking. I train teachers. That's what I do. And so this year I was able to leverage all the things I did during literally the worst of COVID last year. And I know this year sucked too. Um, but this year I spent 185, um, classroom takeovers. So not 185 days. Some of those classrooms, we did like five classrooms in one day. The largest class I had was 160 kids from India all at once. Um, in Hesperia, I had multiple classes with like a hundred, 105 kids all at once. And I think Fonz, I think you saw some of those on my TikTok and stuff. Um, but it was such a joy to be able to visit 185 classrooms and show teachers what the state of the art could look like with lots of creativity and lots of collaboration and minimal prep and tons of feedback for kids. It was really, really awesome. Oh, that is great, John. And I'm really excited because as you know, I will be sharing your links so people can connect with you, but they will be in the show notes. But 
man, you've got an outstanding TikTok account, Instagram account, you know, you're pretty much on all socials, but I love your TikTok accounts because they really show, you know, what it is that you're doing and the work that you're doing and the excitement, you know, that you bring to the kids and really that the kid, that the learning that you're doing is bringing to the kids. And that is something that is great. And we're going to be talking about that. But before we get into this, John, I'm always curious. And, and as you know, a lot of the guests that I bring on people that I look up to people that, you know, are doing some great things and that I've taken a little bit and kind of sprinkled it into my practice. But like any superhero, we I always love to hear the origin stories, John. And so I know we were talking a little bit about that prior, but for our listeners or our viewers that may just be knowing or getting to know who you are, you know, can you tell us a little bit about that origin story and how you fell into education? Yeah. So it's kind of a crazy story because, um, like I was telling you in the pre-show, I was Mr. 2.9, like almost every report card I ever got said, if John would apply himself and, um, school just didn't, it didn't resonate with me. And, uh, I liked learning. That's the irony. So like, I basically taught myself how to read at a really high level in third grade. When I was nine years old, I had a monthly subscription in the military book club and I would get hardcover books and read them myself. And then I'd go to school and get B's in English. And, um, so basically I went through school. I had ideas about being a PE teacher, but my dad said, you won't make it. So I was like, okay, well, I'll try business. Long story short, I ended up marrying uh, a teacher and she told me that, um, I needed to get my summers under control. <laughs> so she basically hooked me into teaching and it was great. It was crazy. Cause like by the second day I was literally thinking, this is what I do. Like, this is my jam. Teaching is what I do. And for me, it's a very much teaching every day is a restorative practice for me. I have two virgin yearbooks. I literally got the yearbook and walked. I was not, uh, and part of it was my own fault, but I was a four foot 11 freshman with one red, a uh, one blue eye and one green eye. I'm left-handed. I'm right footed. Um, I liked star Wars in 1977 when only the, the geeks did. And so school just wasn't a smooth, smooth experience for me. So to be able to come into school and demonstrate, um, how teachers can engage all the kids, not just the hand raisers and how teachers can unleash creativity, not just focus on kids that memorize things because like I used to be intimidated by the kids that, oh, they know all the presidents. I was like, I'm out of here. They know every state I'm out of here. Nowadays, I got a phone. <laughs> I can compete in that. So now it's about what can you do with information, which is a very different state than what can you memorize? Because Memorizing's not my jab. I don't love flashcards. Math facts were a pain for me. I couldn't remember what prepositions were until I started teaching them. And um, so that's kind of my origin story. I came on board as a slightly damaged former student who wanted to um, make life a little better for kids. And it turns out, oddly enough, that I have a latent talent for pedagogical design and experience design that would have never really come to the foreground without my wife talking into teaching. So that's, that's kind of my wacky origin story. 
Oh, that is a wonderful story. And I mean, I know we're talking and and prior to this, uh, in, you know, going into education, like you said, you, you came in as an emergency certification teacher. But prior to this, you were doing uh, advertising and you were working in the, that business field. And, you know, like we were talking in the, in the pre-chat prior to, to the show, you know, a lot of things, I, I'm seeing a lot of great teachers, people that are doing some amazing things that are, you know, kind of, it's a pivot, you know, going into teaching. But I like that you're saying and being honest that you're, you took that experience that you had in the classroom and like you said, slightly damaged student and now you're making things better and you're engaging students and it's it's a restorative practice for yourself. And I think that's something that's great that, that you're doing and you're finding that motivation through that. So now what were some of the, I, and I know you touched a little bit on, you know, on the, the schooling, the, the, I guess the social awkwardness, things of that sort, but not being able to, or memorizing and doing all the facts. Is that really like, was there a particular teacher though? Maybe there, was there somebody uh, that you did have that you said, wow, you know, like this teacher really, you know, did things differently and maybe that little seed might've been planted there at some point. I, I can tell you for sure in third and fourth grade, um, I went to Catholic school and Mrs. Stimble, and I haven't talked to her for decades upon decades. Hopefully she's still with us here on the planet. But Mrs. Stimmel was able to differentiate for she allowed me to draw pictures in my report because she knew that that was part of the way I communicated effectively. So I can still remember Mrs. Stimmel and my mom. I'm in fourth grade. I don't know what's going on. I barely know what day it is, but I remember them having conversations about things like she didn't mind if I drew notes during the lectures. As long as I was doing well on the tests and quizzes and my homework was turning, dude, that's differentiation. I was this close to inventing sketch noting in 1974, right? Um, I had another teacher in high school. Now this is another fun fact. Uh, I love to draw and I like art, but I don't like, like for me, I like drawing military events and star Wars kind of stuff. That's what resonates. Well, now that's cool. There's a whole subgroup, but back in the day, like I was the only kid for 40 miles that did that. And, um, in high school, I took art from a, a teacher named Mr. Packer, who I talked to about once a year. Um, and Mr. Packer had an AM radio and he would play music while we were drawing. We we're listening to Kenny Rogers, um, you know, the old school stuff, like, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones. But imagine 1980 in a classroom at Paso Robles, California, listening to AM radio while we drew. And, and what I realized later when I became a teacher was I didn't love the art class as much as I loved that the art room was a safe place for me as a person. And he went out of his way to talk to me and ask me questions about my drawings. And he always expressed disdain, but at least he asked me <laughs> uh, because he was like a serious art guy. And he's like another plane, Carifo, but at least we had a rapport, right? And I ended up taking art all four years. And I realized later, uh, and I think I took art one, three times in a row and then took art two, but that was my safe place in school. I had an adult who was interested. And then later in college, now remember I said I was Mr. 2.9. Um, guess what happens? My junior year, I switch into advertising. In advertising, we're making commercials. We're writing scripts. We're making mock-ups for magazine ads. 
we were doing PBL. Once I started experiencing that kind of learning as a student, my GPA shot right up to 4.0. And I want to give credit to Dr. Roberta Asahina, who I have not talked to in long enough ago. I, I need to talk to her. Um, but she saw that in me. She saw something in me that I didn't know that I could do. And she celebrated it. And by coincidence, on my junior year, they needed somebody to do some um, uh, storyboards, which I had no training in storyboards, but I was an incredibly good scribbler from years of airplanes and Star Wars. So I made them this, this, this um, storyboards as a junior, and that team at Fresno State ended up coming first place in the nation in the National Advertising Federation. All of a sudden, guess who's interested in academics? <laughs> and she drew me into that, right? She said, John, I heard you can draw. Let's see something. That's good enough. Go. So she, she took a chance on me. And, um, so when I started teaching after my wife recruited, I realized that that's what drew me into teaching was having those same experiences with kids. Now let's flash forward 26 years of education. I had a student last year who came into my classroom and he was sort of me. He wasn't really big. He wasn't really small. He wasn't really fast. He wasn't really talkative. He wasn't really cool. He was just kind of there. Well, it turns out that this kid had a ridiculous latent skill for making slides. He understood graphics. He didn't have any training. He just liked it. And it got to the point, Fonz, where what I would say, Jonas is going to present the whole class. Be like, oh. They would interview him on the way to recess. How'd you do that? Tell me more. You know, what was really interesting as his slide skills got better. So did his academics and he almost doubled his academic scores last year. And I think there was a lot about that was his perspective of what he brought to the classroom had changed. And so that's, that's like, that's the full story arc for me. That's my favorite thing to do is to go to school and make it better for kids. Man, that is so beautiful. That's so wonderful. And I love a lot of the story parts that you're, I mean, that you were telling us and sharing with us. And a lot of it does resonate with some of my practice too, as well. And like you mentioned, you know, it's so important that you really find something, the strength of your students, because a lot of times we know that a lot of students are not A, B, C, D, E students, yet we measure them by A, B, C, D, E. Right. And it's unfortunate because then we do miss out on all of those extra, you know, the, the extra that those students bring the, yeah. the hands-on, you know, the, like you mentioned here, the one student that found that niche in creating slides and graphic design. And I had a similar story too, as well with a, an emergent, uh, you know, emergent student who's just bringing, uh, you know, uh, learning the language, coming in here, giving her a Chromebook. She was always very scared to speak, of course, feeling self-conscious of the language. But when she created, because I gave her the option, I said, you don't have to get up and speak because you right. don't feel comfortable. But, you know, I want to see a presentation. You know, here's a rubric. And she spoke volumes and she spoke loudly even and with so much confidence in a very similar way where they were asking, like, how did you do that? How did you create that? 
But by the end of the year, she, when she stood up and she said, Mr. Mendoza, I'm ready to present, everybody in the class was just all eyes on her and all of the class was very happy yeah. and cheering her on. But that's just, like I said. Those and that's, that's a life-changing moment for that kid. Look at MPA Jaguars. I, I, I suspect that's also your friend. Yeah. I'm not Brooks Clark, but I will outwork you. So mm -hmm. Josh, to your point, what I got reinforced in school was that I'm not smart because I'm not very good at anything the first time. On the fourth time, I will be coming for you. But because of the way school worked, I never got chances to do things much more than once. So every year at science fair, I got destroyed because we only did one science fair a year. If we'd done four science fairs a year, I would have been coming for you. The fourth one, I would have seen it. And to Josh's point, right? So I had another girl now, and some of these interactions phones aren't academic. Like what you and I just shared were crossover. That was us creating an environment where those students could flourish. I'm going to tell you another story that I love that has nothing to do with academics. I had a girl last year who had allergies and she went through my whole first box of Kleenex the first day. Now, all my classroom teachers know that it's going to be a bad week if we're going through Kleenex box a day. So in the old days, what my old fashioned lizard brain teacher brain was saying was Stephanie needs to be corrected. Somebody needs to address this problem. But I put on my John was a kid here hat and I walked over and I go, Stephanie, is this, is this going to be a thing all year? <laughs> She's like, yes, I have allergies and it's going to be like this all year. <laughs> and I went, okay, hold on a minute. And I get my phone. And she's like, what are you doing? And I go, oh, I'm texting your mom. Am I in trouble? Oh, you are the opposite of trouble. About an hour later, guess what shows up? The door opens and there's a Costco size case <laughs> of Kleenex. And I take a Sharpie and I write Stephanie on the side. And I, nobody touches this, but Stephanie. This is hers. And you should have seen the smile. Because for, I'm pretty sure for her whole career, she was getting in trouble for her leaky nose. But there's a second part, phones. So I start giving her her own Kleenex. Her mom happily bought that case. Now I look over, there's a volcano of Kleenex on her desk. Now this happens. My old teacher brain starts to say, make her clean that up. That's messy and inappropriate, right? Teach her to be responsible. And I'm thinking, no, the last thing she wants to do is bring attention to this pile of boogers that she's been spitting out through the Kleenex. So you know what I did? I thought, what would I want? And I'll tell you what I did. I walked over silently and I put a trash can right next to her. And I said, that's all you system. And I left. Because the classic teacher mentality would have been to tell her, I need you to throw those away. You're, you're being a problem and I'm not going to go there with kids. And guess what? Within three weeks of that school year, Stephanie would do anything I wanted because we had formed a bond over that. And I could have easily made it 
uh, she can't get with the program kind of thing. And I'm, I'm telling you, I'm just not going to do that. Another big conversation I had with myself last year, lighting up, there's a point where lighting up is good. There's a point where it's dehumanizing. And I had real struggles with, uh, my administrator last year, didn't think my lines were neat enough. And I was like, compared to what? Is there a board policy that there's a, is there a, is there a dashboard for neatness? And like, how neat do you want me? And one kid was sitting on the ground one day in line because we were washing hands for the 17th time that day. And my principal's like, oh, he can't be sitting in line. And I said, why can't he be sitting? If we were waiting for a concert, he'd sit down. Well, yeah, but it's, it's not okay. And I was like, it's not okay compared to what? compared to what? And, um, my principal pushed it and I go, look, bro, that's the only kid in my class right now. That's passing at math. He could basically do anything he wants. I am not going to mess with the golden goose. I'm not going to make that kid frustrated with me over waiting in line to wash his hands for literally the fifth time. I'm not going to do it. And so I had a lot of really powerful conversations with myself last year about how is it that we are treating kids? And, uh, and I'm going to pivot us now to, to a new idea. I don't think teachers engage kids as much as remove impediments to the engagement kids naturally have. How's that for a statement? I don't think that it's my job to entertain kids into working. I think it's my job to give them a situation where they want to work and then stay out of the way. And I think when you use pencils or erasers too liberally to get kids working, I think that's a really dangerous path. I think if you say to kids, I wonder what a Mars base on Minecraft might look like. I don't need to engage them after that point. Uh, what I need to do is create a path where they, where they can research it and they can find out what things represent success in a bar space. And I think I can teach them to network with other kids in other schools to learn out some cool tricks that they did. And I think they can interview some aerospace people to talk about some of the challenges, but that's not really engagement. That is giving kids the tools to be good at the task. So it's a very fine line there because you see a lot of teachers that do a lot of entertainment and I, I'm like, Meh. I'm not sure my job is to entertain kids or to engage them. And think about it this way. If you're, if you're listening and you disagree, kids are highly motivated to learn to walk on their own. Why? They want to be mobile. Kids are motivated to teach themselves to cook. Not all the time, but a lot of times. Um, and think about it this way too. Once kids leave school, how many of us have had kids go on to do dynamic incredible things as young adults that you never saw in them. You know why? They have a problem that they've identified that they want to solve. And so I really feel like as a classroom teacher, my job is to find out things that they want to work on and get them there. And sometimes the thing they need to know is long division because middle school's coming. That's okay too. There you go. That's great, John. Thank you so much for sharing that. And then kind of like going from that direction, you know, and creating 
and enabling students and just helping them grow. Let's talk a little bit about Edu Protocols. And I'm curious, you know, just to hear the story where this idea came from, you know, and then just to, you know, take it from there, like into what you're doing now and what it's doing for students. And of course, as I'm seeing, you know, your classroom takeovers and seeing the engagement from students, I mean, it's just amazing. And that's one thing that I love and seeing uh, the students. And, and I'm, I'm not talking about just one classroom of students. I'm talking about, you know, sometimes hundreds of students at once, you yeah. know, working and learning. So uh, just let's start off with that. Like, where did this idea come from? Well, they, the protocol themselves were this simple. In 1999, I was sitting at my desk and I basically said to myself, I can't do this for 30 more years. And by this, I mean grade 14 or 1500 papers a week. And so if anybody's old enough to remember the Harry Wong book, I was a Harry Wong disciple. I was like, yes, we're going to have procedures. We're going to be orderly. I'm going to give kids real data feedback in real time. My grades are going to be authentic based on skills, not feels like grades or smiley faces. So I have this kind of angel devil thing on my shoulder. One side is I got to pump out all this work. And the other side is this is killing me. And so I started looking with my business background and my coaching background at Fresno State. I was a grad assistant. I started looking at it and saying, how can I be systematic in my lesson design? Um, in such a way that I'm not killing myself every weekend and yet have diverse and vibrant lessons for the kids. How can I do that? And so that was really where the kind of the edge of protocols ethos came into existence. And, um, the original one was probably the eight parts model in which instead of having kids do nouns one week, verbs, one week, adjectives, one week, instead of doing all part eight parts of speech over eight weeks, I thought. How would a football coach do this? A football coach would do this as stations. And I said, yeah, but I'm not going to have 30 kids in eight stations every day. So what I did was basically meet a graphic organizer with all eight parts of speech. And then I thought, how can I make this fun? And uh, this is old school. I had a friend who had emailed me um, way back in the old days. He had emailed me a thing that said the subject line was times it's okay to say the F word. And so I Googled that. And it turns out there's a whole bunch of hilarious pictures there when you Google it. So I said, let's take a really funny picture, scaffold it with the eight parts of speech, and then do that every day for about three or four weeks until they know all eight parts of speech, not just nouns, not just verbs, not just, oh, and they see them as an ecosystem. And I did that for about three or four years. And then I said, oh my God, this works. Why am I not doing this with other stuff? So I started making other little routines like that. And then that led to sentence parts, which is basically all the types of sentences and dialogue around a funny picture. What would the dad say? What would the dad question? What would the dad make a statement about? What's the dialogue between the dad and the boy who put too much soap in the tub? So we're using really creative things around a really uh, clear structure. And I just kept adding one at a time. And then there was a point where I had a nice little collection of these things, maybe eight or nine that were like go-to, they were money. And my friend, Andrew Schwab said, I want you to do a PD for me. I want it to be classic Carippo. And I was like, what does that mean? He goes, well, you know, all those cool lessons I want 
I want people to learn all those lessons in one day. So I brought in a bunch of my friends that were doing them and I went, wow, this is a thing, right? This, this has momentum. And then I was working with Marlena Heburn. She was the TOSA at the school district where I was the assistant soup. And I said, you know what? We're going to die one of these days. And all of this is just going to go poof. So we wrote the first book. Well, long story short, um, we've sold 35,000 books, which is pretty cool for a guy who never got an A in English one time ever. Um, and for a guy who was not that good at school to have people emailing me saying, my kids love this assignment. Uh, I, and this is going to make me sad when I say it, even though I love it, Fonz. I had a teacher email me and she said, I did one of your protocols today. She DM'd, she said, I've been teaching 30 years and the kids blew me away today. And on my way home, I realized that up until today, I had been underestimating my students the whole time, which I was sad to hear her reflection, but she was so happy that the rest of her career could be right. And I told her, I said, no guilt. You were doing classic teacher. That's what they would have been getting almost anywhere. But now that you know the difference, you have a duty to make your class like that every day. And she's like, I'm, I'm here for it. So that's like the nutshell version. Does that make sense to there's some parts? Oh yeah. No, 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 no. That's great. And I think, you know, especially this last story is just something that's wonderful in the fact that, you know, oftentimes, you know, we need to turn the mirror on ourselves in, as teachers and just kind of, you know, see where it is that we can grow and continue to, you know, do different things to, you know, help our students. But yeah. oftentimes one thing that I've noticed, and even myself, when I first got into teaching and getting, being a math teacher, just because I had enough hours in finance and again, very similar to you, emergency teacher. And so I went in there, but then I taught math the way I learned math, but it wasn't until years later that I learned math in a way that is going to, you know, help the students even more with manipulatives and hands-on and really, you know, what's good for one is good for all and, and that kind of practice and seeing yeah. the success in that. But it took some time to reflect on that. But sometimes it's it's hard, but at the same time, it's like, wow, like I get yeah. it now. <laughs> well, and, and I see Mel A's comment, like I need that reflection piece. And so first thing for any teachers that might be listening, don't feel guilty. At some point, every American thought that coffee came from a coffee shop, Denny's or 7-Eleven. Am I wrong? Right there for the younger people, there were commercials in the seventies that went like this. Jim never has a second cup of coffee. Now, how's that working out? Well, we didn't know about Starbucks before we didn't know. And here's the hilarious part funds. We think we're all cool with Starbucks and Pete's. There are people in Italy like, you Americans are idiots. We've been doing this for a hundred years. So let that guilt go, right? I didn't have a Texas-based brisket in my mouth until I was age 50. I didn't even know it was a thing until age 48. I went 48 years without knowing that. That's part of life. Here's the only part that's bad, and I'm thinking of Mel in particular. If you know the difference, what's my Aunt Angelou say? If you know better, you have to do better. So I'm Catholic, so I get blessed ignorance, right? If you don't know, that's fine. But I think professionally, we owe it to ourselves to consistently look for better ways to enhance the student performance. 
And if you look at the scores over the last 50 or 60 years, we are not growing. And what that tells me is, Fonzie, have you ever heard of uh, an admin in a meeting say, let's look at the data. Everybody, yes. we have to look at the data. Well, here's what the data says, Fonz. In the last seven years in California, the state scores are not going up. You know what that tells me? That tells me we're done. The data is telling me to look for new opportunities. And maybe academics is not the only thing that we need to do in school. Maybe we think, need to think about creativity. Maybe we need to think about politeness. What if school was raising children that had empathy for other people? But when we're stuck in the mindset that it's academics or bust, what happens is there's a ruthless piece to that that is not helping anything. So it's really important to look at these things. Now, I'm thinking of you again, Mel. You're getting a custom session right now, uh, but I'm talking to everybody. Um, look at some books, you guys. Look at John Taylor Gatto, if you want to put that in the chat. Um, uh, John Taylor, G-A-T-T-O. He wrote a book called Dumbing Us Down in 1994. He was the New York State teacher twice. He has passed on. But he tells you a lot of the things that cause American schools to be especially mean. And by knowing that, I was able to counteract it. Um, there's a super powerful book called um, What Schools Could Be by Ted Dintersmith. Ted is a parent. He's not even an educator, but he drove all over the United States looking for cool, unique things schools are doing that make kids better at being themselves instead of better at imitating other people. Um, my favorite one is The End of Average by Todd Rose. Have you heard of that one at all, Fonz? Oh, I haven't. <laughs> okay, so dig this. I'm going to blow some minds right now. Um, if you've heard of eugenics, which is the science of studying people based on the way they look, the guy that invented eugenics is the same guy that popularized the bell curve. Okay. I don't want to be hooked to that deal. It stinks. And in the end of average, Todd Rose, who flunked out of college twice, but now is a Harvard level researcher, tells us about the history of school and why the bell curve is a huge mistake. In my class, I go for mastery. We're all going to get there. I've changed my position as a teacher from a gatekeeper. Well, only four kids are going to get A's in my class because I got to get a writer for high school. That's not my jam anymore. My jam is now, I'm going to see how far I can get you. And some of you might be Ivy League, and some of you might have the best taco cart on the West Coast. So please remember me when that's the reality, because I will visit you a lot. I'm going to help you be your best you. My job is to move you from here to there. My job is not to screen you out of college. My job is not to screen you out of AP classes or into AP classes. My job is to help you be your best you. And I think if every teacher took that kind of youth pastor approach, it would be very different. And I'm going to say another thing. Hopefully I don't offend anybody. But if you, if your kid, Fonz, do you have kids yet? No, no, I don't. Okay. Cause you look young. So I'm going. <laughs> so Fonz, if you had a child that was 13, and they were on a cheerleading team, would you expect them to have the coach's number? Their cell number? Yeah. Yeah. Would you expect them to be friends on Facebook? Yeah. Yeah. If your kid was 13 and he played Little League football or baseball, would you expect him to have the coach's information? Yes. 
if they were in FFA? Yes. If they were in your youth group? Yes. Football coach, cheerleader, FFA, English teacher. Oh, no, I don't do that. <laughs> How does that make sense? My job is to help young people be their best self. My job is not to pass them on. And I'm going to tell you one more fun story. You know what I told my kids this year on the first day of school? I told them, I will be at some of your weddings. Do you know how sixth graders respond to that? It's a freak out. I tell them, one of these days, I'm going to meet your kid at Target. Your kid. We're going to bump into each other at a movie theater. We're going to see each other at dinner. I might perform your wedding. How do I know this? I've done three of your weddings, former students. I might adopt one of you because I've adopted one of you. So here's what I meant to tell you guys. You didn't choose me. I didn't choose you. It's public school. We just showed up. But we're going to spend 180 days together. And what I know is that we're forming a potentially 20-year relationship of working together. And here's the deal. I'm never going to treat you like this as a 180-day experience. I'm going to give you the respect that I'm going to want when I see you at Target in some, some day. I don't want you to do this. Hey, crypto. Sorry. Gotta go. I want you to go, dude, remember that time on water day when the blah, blah, blah happened? I want kids to see me 10 years from now, 15 years from now, and think of me as being an asset to their life, not a gatekeeper. And I guarantee you that changed the way that our school year went. Last year during COVID, I had zero suspensions, zero referrals, only one really tough parent meeting. And it was partially my fault, but we worked it out. We had a really great year because we respected each other on the long term. And as we're getting at the end of the year now, I'm seeing countdowns, only eight days left. That's not a good message for kids. What I'm telling them is I'm still going to be here next year if you need help during seventh grade. Text me later. I'll help you with your gaming computer. I had a kid this last fall who wanted, he had me tweeting about his donor's shoes for his Minecraft computer. That's what we do, right? That to me, that's the highest calling. And we've got to reimagine what the role of teacher is. It's not gatekeeper. My job is to make them into the best version of themselves they can be. And if that happens to be college, wonderful. But I have a student named Aaron was in my class in 2002 and his, his cam folder came with a post-it note that said, Aaron doesn't meet graduation requirements, but we don't want him back. Signed the entire seventh grade. I want you to think about how seventh grade went for him. Aaron came into my class. I took him under my wing. Luckily it was a PBL class. We were doing video. We flourished. As his video skills got improved, his notoriety in the school got improved. Guess what trailed behind that font? His academics. He graduated high school just fine with about a 3.1 after being told he was not a good student for years. Right now, that kid owns at least three businesses, and he's probably making about 30000 a month. Yes, I do want to be his friend. <laughs> By the way, 
I officiated his wedding at a really swanky golf course in Southern California. You guys, our job is to make kids their best. Anybody can stand in front of a room of kids and say, you're out, you're out, you're out. That doesn't take passion, love, or skill. It's easy to eliminate kids. It's a whole other thing to engage kids and find them where they are. And I'll tell you one more quick story, Fonz, because I don't know what our time limit is, but I feel like we're starting to wrap up. Oh, we're good, man. Don't worry. Um, so I've done 185 classroom takeovers this year. I've had no less than four aides, classroom teacher aides, crying during the session. You know why? They cannot believe that their kid that never does anything just came in in third place in Blook It or Gim Kid or not. They're seeing that transformation of their kid in seven minutes. And what I tell them about is in the end of average by Todd Rose, one of his big three principles is context. When you change the context of the interaction, different strengths in the individuals will appear. And it turns out that just about the same amount of kids who get A's like the current context of school. So if you're going to teach school in the classic way, you're going to continue to get the same basic results. If you want better results, you have to change the context of the classroom. And remember the teacher that said, I don't know if this is real teaching. What she was seeing was her school's kids. It wasn't her class, but seeing her school's kids in a different context and different things were coming to the front because I was giving them opportunities to participate in different ways. Um, one of my friends, Dr. Mick, Greg McWhorter, he's watched me do this quite a few times. And he goes, John, what you're really giving kids is equity. Fonz, do you know how sometimes in your class, uh, there are certain, especially sometimes there will be girls that are very extremely quiet. It's boys too, but I've always had a little group of girls in my class, like four girls that don't talk ever, ever, ever. And what Greg noticed was sometimes those girls come in first when we play Kim Kit or Blook It. And he goes, you're giving them a different way to share their learning and their skill because it's not based on putting their hand up or out chatting people in class during a debate. They can participate at a high level silently. And it's great when those kids win. Cause I go like, who, who is, who is Evelyn? And she's sitting there like this and she still doesn't say anything, but you can tell she's having a good day. So I would really encourage teachers to look at their practice. And, and again, here's another thought for you, Fonz. I'm seeing a lot of teachers on TikTok saying the kids are this and the kids are that, and the kids are this and the kids are that regarding behavior. I've been in 185 classrooms this year. I'm telling you 183 of them were nothing but fun. The kids were polite. I didn't even introduce myself when I do these makeover spots. I walk in and I go, there's the lake, let's go. And the kids are like, okay. So I start reeling them in. The kids are ready to learn. The kids are ready to play. The kids are ready to be polite to each other. The kids all year, like I said, I had two kind of wonky classes, but that'll happen out of 185. Um, the 183 were just absolutely golden. I'm not seeing 
And I worked with kids in India. I worked on the East Coast, the West Coast. I've been uh, some, did some in Mexico. The kids are fine. But if you've got to change the context, you got to remember these kids spent two years at home. They could go to the bathroom whenever they wanted. They didn't have anybody chasing them around at recess, scaring them. They could have a snack whenever they wanted. They got to go to Costco with their mom once a week or something like that. So when you shove them back in the existing Victorian style can, of course, they're going to push back. Imagine if I took a bus full of teachers and we worked in Hawaii all summer at a school on the beach where we got a luau every Friday. If I take them back to their regular school, they're going to go, this is not as good. That's all the kids are doing in most cases. And when you mix that feeling of, I knew what life could be. And then you mix that with being really bored all day. Guess what's going to happen? You're going to have behavior issues. If you keep kids working and talking and building and creating, and you're giving them good feedback, you're not going to have those behavior problems. Those are a misread symptom is the way I would put it. And are you in the classroom right now? What's your take on that? No, well, currently I'm not in the classroom. Uh, I serve as an instructional tech, so okay. I'm at, yeah, I'm at but that. You're seeing kids. You're but seeing I'm seeing kids. kids, yeah. And when you see classrooms where the teacher is working with them, not talking at them, what's the class response? Oh, yeah, the class is engaged. They're fine. Yeah, they're, they're fine. fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, John, thank you so much. Like, you know, this, this was amazing. And I mean, it, this was a lot more than I expected and <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. Every bit of it. I mean, this is something that, you know, is just for me, my, myself, just for continued growth for all our listeners too, as well is going to be just something that's wonderful. I want to thank Mel and I want to thank uh, Josh also who's here and Josh is also all, yeah. you know, please don't bore me. <laughs> if you're not boring kids, your behavior goes way down. Yeah. So the, the boredom comes up when you're asking kids to sit and do some online testing business four days a week for three hours a pop. Of course, they're going to sneak in some Nelly. They're bored. Yeah. And then patrolling these. You guys just engage the kids as people. First thing, engage them as people. Wonderful. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate it. And before we end, I always love to end with the last three questions here that I love to ask all my guests. So question number one for you, John, would be, and maybe you've already gone over it a little bit within this talk, or maybe there's something a little bit more specific, but currently in the state of education or through your experience, what would you say is your current edu kryptonite? Ooh, my current edu kryptonite would be I'm, I'm worried about teachers that are, um, being negatively impacted by some of the legitimate complaining on social media. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So notice that I said legitimate. I think that there are definitely things to complain about, um, getting a pencil and a cookie for teacher appreciation week worth mentioning, but I worry that. What we're broadcasting is disdain for our career. So I think that I, I, I'm not worried that people are complaining. So I don't want that to go sideways. I think, uh, teachers are professional adults and we should be able to critique our career. Yes. But there's that fine line between that and being perceived as children, uh, no perceived by children as not enjoying our career. So I'm going to say this with love. You get to teach. 
You don't have to. I'm terrified of what happens when a lot of teachers quit, but I'm not happy about what looks like when teachers are trapped. So I, that's, that's my kryptonite is how do I help my friends have positivity about their job, given the horrific conditions in a lot of places. That's the one thing that I, I don't have a singular answer for. And it scares me a lot because when, when teachers are not excited or in love with what they're doing, and they don't have to be Robin Williams about it, but when they're not, pur maybe purposeful is a better word, but teachers aren't purposeful about their work when they don't know what their why is in teaching. To me, that's a really tough place because you've got third, exactly in Pia Jaguars. You now have 30 kids suffering every day. And here's a quote from me. They only get sixth grade once. Like for us, it's just one more year of sixth grade. If I wreck sixth grade, those kids are going to carry that psychic burden for the rest of their life to some degree. So that that's a very scary area for me. And I'm trying my best to help as many teachers um, have a positive experience as possible. Excellent. Well, thank you, John, for that answer. It's very, very well just thought out and thank you so much next question if you can have a billboard with anything on it what would it be and why i would say um here here's my billboard my billboard would be a national campaign and the billboard would say make teaching a chill job again remember when teaching was a chill job what happened and I think that we need to improve teachers' conditions. So hopefully, if you didn't like my last answer, you'll love this next answer. I would love to see it where teachers get automatic free lunch, high-quality free lunch. I'd like every teacher's lounge to have like a $1,000 cappuccino machine and real half-and-half and half soy milk, not that cremora business. <laughs> like, let's let's take care of the people that are take care of, taking care of our kids. And And I think like last year, I was a teacher, and I'm thinking, why do teachers pay taxes? That's crazy. We could just let them keep all the money and then the districts don't have to spend more, right? And so what if we looking at all of this? Yeah, teaching was a chill job. Mel, back in the 70s and 80s, people would get teaching jobs because it was a chill job. Like, here's an example of what I mean by that. In California, somewhere in the late 80s, we moved from 165 days of teaching to 108. 100, that's three more weeks? And guess what? When in my whole life from 1969, when I entered kindergarten until I left college, I had never heard the term teacher burnout. Teacher burnout starts happening about five years after we went to 180. And then don't get me started on the uh, high stakes testing. I have no problem. I have no problem with being assessed on the work I've done with my students. The problem is the test sucks. It's horrible. Um, in California, the test barely even works. They've got a 10 key for the kids to work. All the commands are reversed. What would normally be like, it's insane. It's like an SAT for eighth graders. We are not testing eighth graders for college. We need to know if they can read a couple paragraphs and do some arithmetic. So if we could right size the state testing to be a true, um, dipstick of what we're doing, not a high stakes mania. Like here's one of the moves I would make funds. How about this? What if there was a monthly half hour test and it was in something like quizzes? 
Would people be stressed out? No. And guess what? Every month I would get a heads up on how my kids were on back fluency. I could live with that. So going back to the chill job, how about teachers guarantee get a, a new laptop every three years? That's what we do in business. How about if every teacher needed to have a sabbatical every eight to 11 years, somewhere in that window of eight to 11, you would basically be a, a TOSA for that year. You'd still come to a school. You'd still go every day. You'd still have a boss, but you wouldn't necessarily have a class. And your job would be to push in and visit and work on creative practice. If we added some elements to that, to teaching, which frankly, none of those are very expensive and cut the days down because I experienced this last year. I'm a fairly engaging teacher. I'm not perfect. There's people better than me, but I'm pretty good at it. When my kids hit mid-May, they were done. They were done. The last two weeks of May and June was crowd control. So what if we did this? What if we went to a four-day school week? Oh, you know what, Fonz? Four-day school week is illegal in California because kids have to go to school five days. Who cares? So what if we went 180 days, but it was a four-day week? Imagine one day a week for teachers to be dedicated to prep, grading, and professional development without subs and guilt trips. Those are some of the things that we could do with my national billboard campaign that says, make teaching a chill job again. See, I took that full circle. That's my advertising. Love it. Love it. And that's the, yeah, you said it. That's the advertising background. Well, John, thank you. Well, one last thing. Sorry. Yeah. One last thing. You'll hear this a lot. Pay teachers more. I agree with that, except you have to love this job. If I pay you 400000 a year to run sixth grade and you hate it, 500000 is not going to help. So my passion is about creating better conditions so that the people who naturally love teaching want to be there. What I've seen on TikTok is people who love teaching, but can't stand it anymore. They need to break up with teaching for their mental health. That's a problem. Perfect. Well, John, thank you so much. This has been such a fruitful conversation. And I thank you very much because there's so much, so much, so many knowledge nuggets that you dropped today. And it's wonderful. Uh, you know, I'm definitely sure that we'll definitely get a lot of great feedback from this episode. But thank you so much for spending a little bit of your evening with us and just sharing your passion. As I could tell, this is something that really, you know, when you fell into teaching, like this is really what you were called to do and and the work that you've yeah. done has been something amazing. So thank you so much. I did share links uh, to your socials and I do have the links to the books here as well. And they will also be on the show notes. So guys, those of you that are joining us live, Mel, Josh, and anybody else viewing, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I really appreciate you all. And you will definitely get all of John's contact info in the show notes uh, as I get ready to post the episode up, maybe in about 45 yeah, minutes. Don't you can forget. See that free lifetime tech support. So if anybody that's watching this, you can ping me on Twitter or wherever and say, how do I do this? I love helping. Drop me a line. Weekends included. Don't worry. And Bonds, what I'd like to do is maybe in a month or two, take the data that we've got for the feedback and hopefully there's a pushback. This is not about everybody agreeing, but if people say, yeah, John, but what about this? Maybe we do another show in a month or two and, and clean up some of those loose ends and misconceptions that I might have accidentally launched. I love it. I love it. That's wonderful. And that, that's, that'd be a great, great, uh, you know, like you said, getting the data off of yeah. the, you know, off of the show and then just bringing you back. And as always, you know, all our guests, 
you're always welcome back at any time and then we can definitely make that happen but thank you john i really appreciate y'all thank you all for joining us please don't forget to check out our website at myedtech.life myedtech.life check out all our previous episodes and as always thank you so much for your support and making my edtech life what it is today as you know our mission and our vision and our passion is just to bring educators and creators together one show at a time so thank you so much for joining us today guys and always remember until next time Stay techy, my friends.